3CR Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Burung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're tuning into 3CR. Um, I'm Grace. How's everyone doing today? I'm good, and I'm Sonera. Um, uh, we're all doing well. You know, I just finished Ramadan and celebrated Eid and kind of, like, ate too much, but that's usually what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's usually the case. <laughs> yeah. How, 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 was your, how was it celebrating it? Like, what did you do other than eat? Well, it's what we always do. We Well, our family goes to the mosque, um, to pray in the morning and then we go to like uh we go see friends and family um although my family is like living overseas we go to see whoever else uh we're closest to so yeah it's all fun Mm, yeah cool so let's just go straight to what we have for today um as usual we have a lot and also today is a special day as well Mm -hmm. so um uh, climate show action, a climate action show host Vivian Langford actually chat to Christine Rose, a lead agricultural campaigner for Greenpeace Aurora. So, and we will be looking at um, the return to debris from Cyclone Gabriel to the center in protests and surrounded Fonterra's HQ with climate's uh, crime scene tapes. Yep, and after that we have the ethics of fast fashion or just fashion in general, and this is following ten years. Um, since the collapse of Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, uh, where garment workers were killed. And then after that, around 10 past 8, we'll be joined by, Cla- uh, we'll be joined by Claudia uh, with us to present the final segment of Autism Awareness Series. Yeah, I also will be speaking to Lan Cooper, who is the secretary of the Mayday Executive Committee. And yeah, so we'll be speaking about the Mayday March that's coming soon as well. So before we head in, let's also go into our headlines as well for today. Uh, we'll actually go to Patrick Trick, first, yeah. who's joined us today for the news headlines. Thanks, Sanera. Uh, thanks very much. Well, some very interesting developments out of the Sudan conflict. According to a UK newspaper, The Observer, the Libyan warlord Khalifa Haffa has helped and prepared the rapid support forces, a militia now fighting for the control of Sudan for the battle in the months before the devastating violence that broke on the 15th of April in Sudan's capital of Khartoum. This has come as the UK and the USA and other nations have evacuated diplomats over the weekend as the violence continues between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces. With the UK Prime Minister Richie Sunak delivering a statement on Sunday stating the British armed forces has staged a complex and rapid evacuation of all diplomatic staff and their families from Sudan. The conflict has seen more than 400 people killed in the fighting, with a ceasefire finally brokered uh, which will be starting at midnight local time or 8am Australian Eastern Standard Time. Now back home, The Age and the ABC has reported this morning that millions of Australians will be able to buy 60 days worth of medicine for the price of a single prescription 
from September under a major shake-up of the pharmaceutical benefits scheme in next month's budget. Today, the federal government will announce that at least 6 million Australians will be able to collect a two-month supply of medicine rather than one when they pick up their script, effectively halving the cost. This change will, will mean more patients need, need fewer visits to the GP for repeat prescriptions, and the government estimates it will save Australians more than $1.6 billion over the next four years. The policy will be targeted at people with chronic illnesses like diabetes and heart disease and will include 320 medicines on the PBS. Meantime, Australia's Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, has recognised the frontier wars as part of the truth of the shared history of this country. In a speech given at the Redfern Anzac Day commemoration gathering for Indigenous veterans, while First Nations people fought in the post-Federation wars are included in the Anzac Day commemorations, those who fought on Australian soil in the frontier wars are not. Critics of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra also call for minimal inclusion in the frontier wars story in expeditions, while other call, other call for a separate museum dedicated to truth-telling of this important part of, of Australian history. And while Victorians await the official announcement of Premier Daniel Andrews in relation to the raising of the age of criminal responsibility on Friday, indications are that the threshold age will be lifted only from 10 to 12. It's an outcome re receiving rebuke from the large number of legal, human rights and First Nations organisations who have fiercely campaigned for the age of uh, criminalisation to be raised to 14 years in line with the United Nations recommendations. First Peoples Assembly co-chair and Bangarang and Wurundjeri elder Auntie Geraldine uh, Ackerson describes the likely age raise as heartbreaking, according to a report in the National Indigenous Times yesterday. Auntie Ackerson is reporting as saying, I have very mixed emotions. I'm, very, I'm trying to, to focus on the positive, that the increase is a slight improvement of the barbaric practice of sending 10-year-old children to prison, but 12 is not something to celebrate. It's not a welcome move. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service has called the outcome incredibly disappointing and the Human Rights Law Centre tweeted that the move is a cop-out and a failure by the Andrews government. Thank you so much, Patrick, for doing the headlines today. Much, much appreciated. That is OK. All good. Big news uh, this Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Now we'll be heading into a song. Yeah. And right after that, you'll be listening to a Greenpeace special from the Climate Action Show. Stay tuned. This is Blind Man by Family Chauvelin Band. I'm looking across this land Reminds me of a place So far away Far from here I see
family Shavala band and next up was actually also the um, song called Future Children by Lonnie Holy. Now I'll be looking into a Greenpeace special from the Climate Action Show. The Climate Action Show host Vivian Langford actually chat to Christine Rose, a lead agriculture campaigner for Greenpeace, Aurora, who returned the debris from Cyclone Gabriel to the center in protest and surrounded Frontera's HQ with climate crime steam tape. This is because the big dairy farming is contaminating and destroying freshwater rivers in Aurora, and the Frontera company is their greatest climate polluter. We're going to take a listen to uh, we look at Vivian and Chris as they chat about what the climate movement looks like after Jacinta Ardent and the call to have climate action policies as a priority for New Zealand's upcoming election. You said before that Frontier is very good at greenwashing and they did say after this, you know, many of their farmer shareholders were impacted by the floods and they are all too aware of climate change. And they say they are investing a billion dollars in sustainability and methane reduction. Well, can you um, <laughs> debrief us from that comment? Or is it is it true that they are doing that? Some of their methane reduction and climate adaptation responses are funded by the government, so by taxpayers, from funds that they contribute nothing towards. So the Climate Emergency Response Fund, for example, uh, which was announced last year, they got over $300 million from that, and yet they contribute nothing to it because they're outside the emissions trading scheme. So, um, you know, there's, again, the, you know, society's bearing the cost while they bank on the profits and, and have this work subsidised. Um, and also, you know, they talk about the billion dollars in sustainability, but they didn't talk about what those programmes look like or over what period that money's being spent. And they have these um, industry initiatives that when you uh, are in a position to judge the outcomes, it's, it's just more greenwashing. And so we've seen this before when public awareness of the role of big dairy in contaminating our freshwater rivers. Um, so when, when Fonterra, um, when there was a lot of pressure because so many of our rivers have been destroyed because of dairy intensification, which has happened over in just in recent decades, 
um, there was all this pressure on. And so Fonterra said, oh, well, we're going to develop these sustainability initiatives and we're going to work with the industry to fence stream margins. And actually, in that, it looked really good, but in that time, the water quality of our rivers deteriorated so that 85% of our rivers now, are, uh, they breach d different environmental standards. And so this has been the story of Big Dairy in New Zealand over the last 30 years. The tipping points get reached and Fonterra, finally under pressure, says, oh, we'll do something, but it's never enough to actually change the situation because it's the intensive model that's the problem. Yeah. And so um, it's similar with a lot of these initiatives that they talk about. It, it's really just greenwashing to save their corporate image and... Um, you know, when they talk about methane inhibitors and, and these other things, um, there is no available treatment for methane that is applicable to the New Zealand farming situation. And oh. so there are companies here in New Zealand that are developing a seaweed um, methane yeah. uh, inhibitor, which is being used on Australian feedlots. But we, we are not a feedlot system. 96% of the um, farms are growing on the cows are fed on grass um, and with the PKE palm kernel supplements. Um, but methane methane inhibitors do not work in that environment. So, you know, it's techno fix uh, magic bullet solutions that just are not and will not address the problem in the real world. And what we really need is for the government to regulate big dairy, to phase out synthetic nitrogen fertilizer and to reduce the dairy herd. That is the only viable option to address big dairy's climate pollution. Yeah. So too many cows, get rid of some Make of them. Too many cows. And then yeah. too, uh, too much synthetic nitrogen, so use a, a natural fertiliser. So not... That's right. Mm. And actually a lot of these um, a lot of these soil types just shouldn't have cattle. And, and you know, now, as you will have, may have seen on your recent visit to New Zealand, even the high country dryland landscapes um, in the alpine areas, uh, irrigated and fertilised and converted to dairy because the price of dairy products has gone up. And so there are these incentives in the absence of decent environmental regulations for farmers just to convert what it might have been low stocking rate um, sheep and beef to very high stocking rate levels, even in uh, habitats that are, there's no way that this farming, this type of farming should occur there. Yeah. And it's not sustainable, it'll erode the land. Look, just just for the listeners, one clarification, the nitrogen fertiliser, how is that a, a climate impact? I know to dehydrate the milk, to make the powdered milk, they use coal-fired power, that's coal. But what's the other climate impact of the nitrogen fertiliser? Great question, because the impacts of synthetic nitrogen fertiliser have been largely invisible, except for Greenpeace's work here in Aotearoa. Um, so synthetic nitrogen fertiliser itself is a fossil fuel derivative, and um, we produce some of it here in New Zealand, but we import the most of it. And we, in New Zealand, the use of it increased by around 700% between 1990 and 2019. And it's um, applied at massive volumes on the pastures to supercharge the grass growth so that these huge number of cows can be maintained. And But it's a um, really significant greenhouse gas emitter in its own right. Um, what, what happens is when the cows eat the grass that's been fed on all this 
synthetic nitrogen fertilizer and the uh, you know digestive fermentation in the cow's tummy uh, changes it to nitrous oxide and so then um, as they pee and poo onto the grass um, it's released into the atmosphere but it also works its way through the soil and that's problematic because now across New Zealand many communities are impacted by uh, water contamination so that their water now exceeds World Health Organization limits of what's safe to drink. So not only does synthetic nitrogen fertilizer create more emissions than the New Zealand domestic aviation sector, but it also enables this massive dairy herd growth and is contaminating both fresh and drinking water. Oh, thank you. Look, that's really clear. Thank you very much. We're talking to Christine Rose, Greenpeace Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now, Christine, just to finish, um, there's another Greenpeace story. I don't know if you'd like to comment. The Greenpeace people were arrested, um, I think, on the high seas as they tried to stop some shell infrastructure going to the North Sea oil drilling area. Uh, what happened there? Tell a bit the story about what happened to them. Well, in that case, um, the shell activists were raising awareness of the um, incredibly dangerous, but probably more widely known impacts of fossil fuel extraction up there in the North Sea and the need for these fossil fuel companies to pay for their damages. And uh, at the moment, you know, again, those costs are externalised and, and, you know, um, these companies have received windfall profits over recent years of huge, huge quantum. And um, so as we see, you know, it's often the poorer communities of the world that pay the worst impacts from that from climate change. So um, the occupation was to raise awareness of that and um, it did lead to arrests, but really successfully highlighted the role of these corporate polluters in um, jeopardizing the future of life on earth. To end on a positive note, I hope you're going to tell me it is positive. It was reported that your new PM, Chris Hipkins, announced that the biofuels obligation bill will be dropped. Now, that doesn't mean anything to Australian listeners. Can you tell us what biofuels obligation means and, and why that is? it good news? Um, it is good news uh, because biofuels in New Zealand uh, at risk diverting food crops to make energy. Uh, because the biofuels obligation required a certain amount of biofuels in our conventional fuel supplies. Actually, food should be for feeding people. It shouldn't be for fueling a transport fleet, which is by nature uneconomic and unsustainable. But this is in the context, unfortunately, this, this was a, a good policy to reject. But at the same time, the Prime Minister has also put on a, on a bonfire a whole lot of other important climate policies such as reducing speed limits, a scheme that subsidised uh, our poorer people to be able to get rid of their clunky old inefficient cars and trade them in for EVs. And so actually, um, rather than this biofuels mandate rejection being a good thing in itself, it's actually just a whole scale rejection of climate policies that we're seeing under the new Prime Minister. So as a package, it's a real step backwards and uh, um, we, we joke that um, that Chris Chris Hipkins, the new Prime Minister, is rescinding Jacinda and the aspirations that she had for New Zealand to address its climate emissions. Mm. Well, when I was in New Zealand, campaigners, climate people told me, oh, well, don't be so starry-eyed about Jacinda Ardern. This is back before Christmas. 
And now I'm very sorry to see that she's left the political stage, but I hope she looks after herself and comes back on the international stage. That's my hope. But what, um, what, what's your view on, well, where New Zealand is heading in climate action? I mean, it sounded so good from Jacinda Ardern. It sounded like a big, clear pathway was in place. I imagine Hipkins will be pulling back and emphasising bread and butter issues. But what's your take on where New Zealand's you have to inspire us in Australia because we're so far behind you. <laughs> Say something to us. But I I imagine it's been a big blow. But tell us where you think it's heading. Where are you? Thanks. Yeah, well, we were very disappointed in Jacinda ultimately because she was really good at presenting this positive image on the global stage but was not any good at implementing the changes needed to send New Zealand in the right direction. So that was really disappointing, a lot of broken hearts, I think. But it's made worse by Chris Hipkins, who um, is, is positioning himself much more to the centre-right. And he's saying he's saying it's bread and butter, but of course climate change is a bread and butter issue. And we're seeing, you know, people can't even afford butter in New Zealand, even though we're, you know, this huge producer of butter. And I guess the hope does lie, compared within Australia, that um, this week new polls... Uh, um, showed that 54% of New Zealanders want more urgent action on climate change. Um, but but the contrast with Australia lies in that um, we don't get arrested for protesting about the climate. Well, we might get arrested, but there aren't rules. We don't have the same ag-gag rules that much of the world has. Mm. And, um, I mean, we were really heartened to hear that the protesters on the Sydney Harbour Bridge um, have, have been... Um, not treated too badly because we're really worried about the precedents where you know these people that are actually acting in the public interest can can be locked up for years so you know that's really unjust um so i think new zealand's um political culture that you know we, like we can know in greenpeace that we can go and do an action and that we won't get beaten up by the police and that um you know the the punishments are not too harsh and so we are seeing a rebuilding of the climate movement. It, you know, did get a bit dispirited um, during the Jacinda years, um, but we are back with force and we are mobilising and it's election year for us. And we will make sure that this is a climate election and that climate change and its consequences are to the fore and that every politician knows that we're serious and that there is no action for the future of New Zealand without serious climate action on Big Dairy. And that was the Greenpeace special where uh, Vivian Langford, the Climate Action Show host, spoke to Christine Rose. So Vivian Langford basically talked to Christine Rose. They were a lead agriculture campaigner for Greenpeace Aurora, who returned the debris from Cyclone Gabriel to descend and protest and surrounded Frontera's HQ with climate, climate crime on scene tape. Uh, climate Action Show host actually is doing this Greenpeace special, which is kind of like a series as well. So you can actually go into their page on treecr.org.au and from there, you will be able to yeah tune in more on, the, on their specials. Now I'll be going into a song and next up we'll be listening to Sonera. This is Decades by J Division.
morning everyone you're listening to 3cr breakfast and that was decades by joy division now going on to uh, the collapse on the collapse of rana plaza which happened 10 years ago um so on april 24th on april 24th a couple of days ago marked the 10 years since the collapse of rana plaza in bangladesh it was an avoidable tragedy that killed over 1,000 garment workers and injured over 2,500 others. It's now remembered as one of the worst workplace disasters, revealing to the rest of the world the cost and human toll of fashion. And a decade later, there have been changes made with the effort of trade unions, brands and manufacturers. But are they enough or just the bare minimum? Today, I'm joined by Nina Crawley, who is the advocacy and campaigns leader at Oxfam Australia, a not-for-profit that aims to tackle inequality. Good morning, Nina. And um, how are you? Welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on, Tanera. No worries. And first of all, can you tell me a little bit about the conditions that garment workers in Bangladesh worked in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know if we if we want to talk about the time when Rana Plaza happened, you know, we know on, on the day, the, the, the day before the collapse, there was actually massive cracks seen in the building and the building was evacuated. So we've spoken to survivors. Um, my colleagues have a recent in Bangladesh and survivors speak of being, you know, scared to go to work. They knew it was an unsafe working environment. There were very narrow stairs. It was difficult to exit. They could see cracks. And they were raising these concerns with their supervisors and they were being ignored. Um, so we know that there's some really um, 
unsafe work conditions. We know that still today workers are working in unsafe work conditions and that issues like harassment um, from supervisors is, is very common. So we've got some serious mm-hmm. concerns around health and safety and more specifically when it comes to wages, which is um, Oxfam's major focus in our work, we know that workers are being paid like less than half a living wage in Bangladesh and also less than a living wage in many other garment-producing countries. So mm. their work conditions are unsafe and then their home conditions are greatly impacted by the poverty wages that they earn. Mm. So how, that was, you know, before the collapse. Has there been any changes um, after, after the collapse in terms of the conditions that they've been working in? Yeah, look, there have been some improvements that have been made um, as far as health and safety are concerned, or particularly as far as as safety. I mean, I think that uh, the Rana Plaza was really a wake-up call that that couldn't be ignored. Um, So we've seen an international court established that um, a number of uh, brands are members of, and since that accord was established, we've seen, um, you know, tens of thousands of inspections done, you know, in in the order of 50,000 or so inspections done across factories in Bangladesh Mm. Um, and um, hundreds of thousands of health and safety issues have been identified through that process and rectified. So um, we have seen a a real improvement in the basic fire and building safety um, that we Mm. need to see. Yeah, we'll come back to the international accord a little bit later, but right now, could we... uh, you know, in a survey of over a thousand Australians, it said that nine out of ten people considered the safety of garment workers when buying clothes. Do our current clothing brands reflect that when manufacturing clothes? Mm, that's a really good question. I think that um, so no, it's a short answer. Mm. A number of um, I I don't think the average consumer really understands the gravity of some of the safety concerns that may be facing workers. Um, As you've seen through the past few days, um, there are a number of um, Australian fashion brands who aren't members of, say, the International Accord. Um, So that that would say to me that they're not taking every step that they possibly could to improve worker safety. And I think that it's... um, when you ask consumers and when, when we ask Oxfam supporters, you know, do you care about ethical fashion? Do you care about how your clothes are made? Overwhelmingly, they say yes. Mm. But unfortunately, they're not given the appropriate information to make informed um, decisions when they're shopping for clothes. And, you know, I think this is a really unfortunate trend we see played out, you know, so often. Is in, in many ways, it's... Um, folks who are struggling being paid off against other folks who are struggling. You know, people in Australia are really doing it tough also and they're weighing up a number of concerns when making um, uh, a purchase. And I think that without that that information at hand, sometimes, um, you know, it's really difficult for them to make purchases that align with their values. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, quite often brands are invested in you know, I suppose greenwashing or redwashing, if you want, you know, making it look like products are more ethical than they may be mm. because, of course, it's something that consumers care about. Yeah, I mean, um, that's also really important that, um, you know, people who are responsible and are decision makers make the real change. And, mm. yeah, you know, um, just we'll be going back to that again, but uh, which companies are holding themselves accountable and is there a shift happening towards clothing being made more ethically? 
um, you know, if that is the case, then what will that mean for the garment industry in Bangladesh? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that um, I think that fashion as a whole has been forced to be held accountable thanks to trade unions supporting workers in country, thanks to consumers raising their voice, thanks to, you know, in some instances, better government regulation. And, you know, for some credit, you know, also thanks to the brands themselves, you'll find people within companies who are working in areas like ethical sourcing are really passionate about this issue and they're trying to progress it within their own businesses. So um, having said that, I think there's so much more to do. So you'll see um, some of the larger brands who have a lot of profile have done a lot of work because, you know, I would say in some ways they wear a lot of the risk. So, you know, an international brand like H&M, for example, or a large Australian brand like Kmart, um, you know, they really have um, progressed in improving uh, their purchasing practices, um, which is a sort of key piece of the puzzle that brands can control and improve. Mm. But I would we're really um, just getting to the tip of the iceberg at the moment. We've built more of a culture of transparency mm. around these issues, and that's good. That's some of the, the, the work that needs to be done, but brands really need to start moving towards doing all they can to prevent human rights abuses, you know, to prevent safety issues, to prevent workers being paid poverty wages. We're not really seeing anybody doing that yet. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about, um, you know, if there needs to be more transparency in the industry. A hundred percent. And I think transparency is just a cornerstone of this issue that will need to be emphasised now and into the future. So at Oxfam, we all, um, you know, a key part of our campaign is to ask brands to publish their factory list Mm. as a starting point for transparency. Um, And that of course, really important. But um, uh, the, the difficulty with stopping at transparency is it relies on others to then do the work to find if there are any risks existing in that supply chain to uncover any potential um, human rights abuses that might be in that supply chain and then bring that back and raise that with the brand. And that takes a lot of resourcing and a lot of effort. So I think it is, what we would like to see is brands moving past with that transparency step and taking it upon themselves to, to do that work to improve wages, to improve safety. Yeah. And, you know, uh, just coming uh, back to that, you know, uh, on your campaign at Oxfam, I was just going to ask, what's Oxfam doing to help workers' rights in the garment industry? And can you tell me a bit more about your petition and your campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Oxfam Australia has been running um, the What She Makes campaign, which focuses on primarily garment workers' wages, but also some other issues like safety at the moment. Uh, We've just launched a new petition to Best and Less. Actually, there's some other, like, sector peers. um, uh, ActionAid is also petitioning Best and Less for the same reason, um, asking them to sign on to the, um, the International Accord for Workers' Health and Safety um, so as I mentioned before, you know, the accord is a really important first step mm. um, to, to work towards worker safety. Uh, but the other work that Oxfam does is 
um, in relating is related to wages. So Oxfam Australia has produced um, a lot of research. We do a lot of brand engagement around improving purchasing practices. So these are really important things like paying suppliers on time, um, not negotiate, you know, not having too aggressive negotiating tactics. Um, ring sensing the cost of wages within your contract so you can ensure that workers are getting paid a wage and that the wage component isn't going to be negotiated down as part of the negotiation. So these are things that brands can do. If I could, I'll just quickly mention, you know, Oxfam in Bangladesh have their own program and they're actually doing a lot of work to support um, not factory-based garment workers, but they have programs that support um, uh, home-based garment workers, so people who are working you know, and subcontracting arrangements from their homes, but also other groups of marginalised workers, such as tea garden workers, fisher mm. people, and domestic workers. And a lot of this work is around um, women's rights and workers' rights and, and um, supporting workers to better advocate for themselves. Yeah, and just coming back to the International Accord on Health and Safety, just letting our listeners know that this is an agreement that promotes worker safety of garment workers in other countries by recognising their right to not be exploited and work in unsafe conditions. But um, asking you now, what does this agreement cover and what do brands look for when they sign on to this agreement when working with garment factories? Um, so... The agreement does um, a few really important things. It um, compels um, companies to disclose the factories that they're working in. It um, supports inspections of these factories to check that if there are any health and safety issues. And then um, brands who are part of that are also compelled to, if there are issues found, work with the suppliers to rectify those issues rather than just pull out to support them to be fixed. Um, and importantly, you know, it is a, an agreement that you need to pay to be a part of um, because, of course, all of this really important work costs money and that allows, you know, for these inspections and for this independent body, the Accord, to operate to, to check the factories are being um, properly assessed. Mm. Um, I, I couldn't really speak to exactly what brands are, are looking for, but from my perspective, the reason why the Accord's important um, and I would be encouraging brands to sign on to it rather than having their own process, is that it promotes cooperation. And um, what what we find is, and, and this is very true, you know, you'll speak to a brand and they'll say, but we can't do this alone. You know, this is a huge problem. We're a small percentage of the, of the buyers of this particular factory. How can we do this by ourselves? This was Nina Crawley from Oxfam Australia, and she's the advocacy and campaigns lead there. And we spoke about the garment industry in Bangladesh following the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza collapse. And just before we wrap this up, I'd like to let you know that coming up on Friday, there's a photo exhibition called Lives Not Numbers featuring work from photographer Taslima uh, Taslima Akhtar to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of the tragedy as well as a panel discussion on the 1st of May called Fast Fashion Kills featuring Rupali Akhtar, who is a survivor of the collapse. Stay tuned for more May Day events, which we will be discussing next up with Len Cooper from the Melbourne May Day Committee. That was an amazing interview as well, um, Mr. Nara. Um, we'll, be, we'll be heading into a song. And next up, we will be speaking to Len Cooper, who is the secretary of the May Day Melbourne Executive Committee. 
speaking about the upcoming May Day that's going to happen. So yeah, stay tuned. This is Know Your Rights by Clash. This is a public service announcement with guitar. And that was Know Your Rights by Clash. Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? 
The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. You're listening to 3CR. And to those those of you who are just tuning in, um, I'm going to be speaking to Secretary of Melbourne Mayday Committee Executive Len Cooper about the upcoming Mayday March that's happening uh, soon. And it has been a tradition actually for 3CR uh, for us brekkie, uh, for to bring in Len to our show. And we're also going to be discussing a bit about the festivities ha- happening. Um, Len is actually in the studio with us today for this morning. Good morning, Len. How are you? Morning. Good to be here. So nice to have you here after a, after a while. How are you? Good. Awesome. So, yeah, just before we head into a bit of like what the events are going to be for this year. So, so can you just explain a bit of what Mayday is to those who don't really know what it is? Sure. Uh, Mayday is a traditionally a, a day for workers to demonstrate their demands and also their achievements. Mm-hmm. And it grew up initially in the United States over well over 100 years ago uh, in the struggle around the shorter working week. We used to, we used to work 48 hours a week in those days and the <clears throat> workers in many industries went on strike to win an eight-hour day. Uh, and that's uh, basically the origin of May Day because they decided when they started that campaign that each year they'd meet in May, May the 1st was the most popular, and uh, they'd meet and uh, they would celebrate their achievements and look at how the eight-hour campaign was going because it took many years to win. Mm. 
And uh, that's how May Day started. So here we in Melbourne, this is about our 133rd May Day. And uh, people have been celebrating the May the 1st for that long. Mm, I see. And what, what does May Day actually help to support? Who, who do they particularly support here? Sure. Well, well May Day is a workers' organisation in that it's either workers who are active in their trade unions or it's workers who are active in their local community groups fighting over the issues that affect them. So it's a workers' organisation, as I say, and um, so when they come together for this once a year, they usually highlight the issues that are affecting them, the attacks on workers' wages, you know, and that's pretty bad at the moment, the cost of living and so on, and wages being pegged and reduced. And So that's one of the issues, of the many issues that they highlight. And then, of course, because workers are the cannon fodder in war, they, um, they oppose, come together and make clear they're opposed to imperialist war and, uh, and want peace, a just peace. And so they, they highlight those issues because, um, as I say, workers are affected by those conditions and they use May Day to highlight their mm. position. I see. And it, it, May Day is actually, uh, it was originally from like... Uh, America and like like a celebration that came up with it. Uh, this is a this is a celebration that came up many years ago from the end as well. So is there is there a difference in Australia of what we particularly are demanding for? Uh, well, I mean, it began with the eight-hour day, which was mm. a big demand then because work workers were working twelve, fourteen hours a week, uh, and there was no law that said you had to limit hours. Mm. So that was a big struggle in those days. But, of course, since then, there have been many, many more struggles in that 130-odd years, and they continue today. So so May Day, the May Day tradition from the eight-hour day is still used to inspire activity and, and workers' demands. You know? mm, I see. So, obviously, every year you, uh, May Day tries to do something different in terms of um, creating a new, I would say, a kind of like a theme to like celebrate and do as part of your festivities. So what, what's coming up for May Day this year? Yeah, well, just on that point, like obviously the uh, a lot of them people in May Day uh, who un- understand that the, that the war and the conditions uh, on workers' wages and conditions being deteriorating is a... Uh, is a problem of the system, a problem of the capitalist system. So many of them uh, support the change to a socialist system. So they highlight that each year as well. Mm. So it's uh, you know it, it, so we have usually three events. Uh, one is the wreath laying at the eight hour memorial at Trades Hall, which is on the Thursday before May Day, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, that's as I say, to commemorate the, the eight-hour day. And then there's a, a, an event in the evening of that night on Thursday before May Day, <coughs> which is about solidarity. So they have speakers, for instance, they'll probably have a speaker on Myanmar and they'll have a speaker on the tax on the workers in the Philippines. And so they have a solidarity evening. Mm. And then on the Sunday... Uh, and historically, May Day in Melbourne has been on the first Sunday in May rather than May the 1st because they've always evaluated the fact that you probably get more workers and their families out on a Sunday than you could get them to go on strike on May the 1st. Mm. 
Mm. So they have it the first Sunday in May to hopefully make it a bigger and better. Uh, and so they're the three events this year. Mm, I see. And with these with these events, obviously, you don't want to give away too much so that people actually make sure they just know the, the highlights of this uh, march and they come in to uh, on the day. Mm. Um, so may, um, to those listeners who probably has seen the poster from May Day, um, it's actually a, quite an interesting poster that people probably are very quite familiar with um, if you have played the game before with the snakes and ladders. Yes. Um, so yeah, just, just a bit of curiosity in that as well. Why, why, did, why was it specifically chosen to be interpreted that way? How, how does it help to highlight the importance of why you should attend this <laughs> march? Well, we, we've had a, a, an artist who has worked for May Day uh, voluntarily for 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's recently retired. And um, this was his creative work. Well, we can't claim any credit for that. It, mm-hmm. He's done a good job. It's quite clever. And it raises all the issues affecting the working class in Australia and the world. And so, and it publicises the May Day March on the on the seventh of May, which uh, assembles around about one o'clock in the afternoon, ready for march through through town. Mm, I see, interesting. And then, yeah. So, and with all these events, obviously, um, we, we definitely you definitely need support, and also uh, people who. Who, who hopefully are willing to come and help and volunteer as well. So, what what can yes. people do to support financially yes. for this? Well, um, I mean, there there are um, there are raffle tickets to buy, and a lot of uh, they're already being sold. The raffle tickets to raise, which is usually our main fundraiser, and then any donations. Obviously, we always welcome those to help us because um, May Day is not funded by anything, anyone, or any organisation. And uh, basically, one of the things we uh, would like volunteers to do, if they could is to um, be a marshal on the day in order to uh, mm. keep keep it orderly keep it moving and and uh, and usually it goes down pretty well that way without any difficulties troubles and so we, we, we need people to volunteer to be marshals we give give them a bit of training on the morning uh, mm. to be at the May, at the march at 10 o'clock and uh, and you know to help us get, keep the thing going well Mm, I uh, see. So that'd be good if people can volunteer. My, um, I could give you my phone number, zero four three eight three eight nine three zero two. I see. Well, for those listeners, I hope you actually managed to catch that, so you can contact <laughs> Len for any inquiries if, if you have. And yes, yeah, just before we go into our, our, our last question, unfortunately, because uh, we also might be running out of time, um, Len. Just, I just want to let people to just understand a bit more. Um, why why do you think this is so important to be celebrated, and why why do we why do we keep having this every year just to let people know about workers' rights? Because obviously, workers' rights um, that's something that we all know. But why is it so important to celebrate this every year and make sure that we speak up for workers? Yes, well, I, I think if you look at the the Australian life, <clears throat> you can find um, that they. <clears throat> they basically advertise public holidays for football matches, uh, uh, Queen's birthday, etc. Uh, this is the only time in the year it is actually a workers' day. Mm. So we think it's really important that workers come out, celebrate their achievements, 
look at their problems and get support for those issues and continue to build support for those issues. So that's the mm. role of May Day, at least. Yeah. How, how, is, how is actually the current situation for workers? Like, and is that a part of, a part of the, <clears throat> any of like, the workers' rights here? Well, it, it, for many workers nowadays, the conditions of uh, increased costs, lower wages and um, <clears throat> high interest rates, those issues are having an enormous impact on workers' lives. In fact, some of them are suffering in conditions that are not much worse than the, uh, uh, the not much better, I should say, than, than the, what occurred in the Depression, the so-called Great Depression of last century. Mm. Um, and so what's happening is the conditions for workers, is, for many workers, is getting like that again. Mm. And so um, there's a lot of suffering and they need a lot of support. And so we think Mayday is one of those organisations that can give them support. Obviously, their unions and their community organisations are other support, uh, but Mayday just contributes this once a year to, uh, to those highlighting those issues so that the public also get to know the problems. I see. And so obviously... And with this, with this, we obviously know this is what this is the big one of the big reasons why, and main big reason why we should celebrate May Day and also keep advocating for workers' rights. So, um, Len, we actually are running out of time. And just so, just one last question from you uh, regarding the May Day event. Can you let our listeners know um, uh, again when this is happening and where is this happening? Sure. Okay. Well, the May Day march itself is on the seventh of May. Uh, the first Sunday in May, <clears throat> and so it will uh, a, a, it will start. The march starts at two o'clock, and they march around town, come back to the trades hall, uh, and uh, and so that's one of the events, and that's the big event really, the march and the protest as they protest in the through the city, at least at, uh, to call attention to all of the issues. And then there's, as I said, there's, a, there's the eight-hour memorial event where we pay homage really to the workers that went on strike to win the eight-hour day many, many decades ago. Mm. Um, and, and then uh, as well, and that's on the Thursday night before the 7th. And, um, and then the other event is the solidarity event where international solidarity, as I said, we're having speakers from Myanmar, from the Philippines and, and maybe others. We're still trying to get uh, other issues that are pretty critical on the world scene so that we can do our bit in supporting their efforts and publicising their, their efforts and struggles. So that's a solidarity evening. So those three events are the important one. But mm. the big one is the march and protest through town. Yeah. And that, so that's it. I see. Def- I see. Yes, yeah, so definitely people, the main one people should come. It's basically the march. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, th- thank you so much, Len. Uh, it's been so lovely to have you in the studio. Um, and it's and hopefully, we, as usual, we get to see you every every yes. year before, before May Day. <laughs> yes. Okay. And thank you. It's a pleasure and that's... Uh, 3CR does a great job, always has. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Len. Thank you. So uh, that was Len Cooper, who is the secretary of the Melbourne May Day Committee Executive, speaking about the 
upcoming May Day March. So if you've actually didn't manage to catch that just now, uh, if you would like to uh, attend the March, it's on Sunday on May 7th. So yeah, and oh yes, that will also be at Victorian Trades Hall. Uh, at um, Victoria and Russell Streets area, uh, and we'll be going to be talk. Uh, we're going to be having Claudia in soon, uh, who will be uh, talking about uh, to her guests. So do stay tuned. Now this is a song called "Another Brick in the Wall" by Pink Floyd.
That was another brick in the wall by Pink Floyd. And so we'll be going to be speaking to Claudia shortly. So do stay tuned. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the Voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. So today we're going to be hearing about autism and neurodivergence in the screen industry. And we have Yudan Michaelis Thorpe, a proud Binjara and Dungati woman living in Mianjin, Brisbane, who works as an independent filmmaker across the nation. She's the founder of the startup Women in Screen Enterprise, designed to promote and create opportunities for First Nations women and women of colour to find creative pathways into the screen industry. Yudan has a slate of powerful screen content with strong female-driven and First Nations-oriented narratives ranging from documentary, dramedy series to horror features and rom-com. Yudan has a Master's in Screen Production and a Bachelor of Indigenous Studies majoring in Trauma and Healing. She joins us now to talk about The Honest Voice, Neurodiversity in the Screen Industry, an article published in Screen Hub which highlights the importance of neurodivergent voices being heard on and off screen. Welcome, Yudan. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me, Claudia. It's lovely to have you here this morning. Uh, I wonder if you could start by telling us what prompted you to speak out on the subject of neurodiversity in the screen industry. Uh, I think what it is uh, is that we present to the average person like hey we're cool everything's fine nothing going on here we're just one of everybody else and then suddenly we see things in a different way and so I constantly found myself in situations um, where I was not understanding what was uh, expected of me or what I was wanting to have other people expect of so it was kind of like this cross communication was not working and um, I just said to, I was just saying to my husband, I can't understand, like, you know, I, I just don't understand why this isn't working. And he said, oh, well, you know, maybe you should tell people that you're neurodiverse. And that was really hard because you just go, oh, there's so much stigma attached to autism and, you know, because this is like, you know, uh, 2017, I think. So, yeah, it was just, really the need to tell people 
you know, I'm not trying to upset you or this is why I'm getting upset by your behavior and how can we work together? So you just have to be honest. So that's kind of how it came about. I'm really nervous, by the way, <laughs> to see you know. <laughs> that's okay. It's, uh, you know, a personal subject and uh, we appreciate you sharing your experience with us. So in that situation, um, how... How did the person that you first shared it with respond? Did you have a positive experience once you shared? It wasn't just one specific person. Um, and and no, actually, the experiences originally were not very positive because, because there wasn't enough education out there, I think, for people to understand that just because someone seems um, normal to you... Um, that you don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And it's that sort of thing where people go, oh, well, you know, we're all creatives and we're all autistic or we're all on the spectrum. And so they, it's basically a demeaning and disempowering of you who's, you know, you've gone through the pain of having to be diagnosed, which is a very long, tedious process. You're working on yourself constantly to try and... Um, be able to manage working, you know, just even working in general um, in a way that you can function with um, neurotypical people. I find it really much easier working with neurodiverse people, to be honest, because mm. we just love that um, that whole amazing creative um, process together and the freedom to, to communicate openly. Uh, so, yeah, going back on tangent, my experience was not very good. Uh, originally um, and it took a fair bit of and that was actually I think that was just really about building the skills that I had to have to be able to communicate what does it mean so when I work so now I'm, I'm much more open and I sort of I preface when I'm working with a team hi guys you know just want to let you know I'm neural diverse and I see the world probably through a slightly different lens to you and I may say things that will upset you but I will have no idea because what upsets you doesn't upset me um, and vice versa. So all I need is for you to be really honest with me. Tell me if I've said something to offend you or if I've spoken in a tone or a way that doesn't work for you, all you have to do is communicate with me because I'm highly intelligent and you can tell me and I'll put it into my brain will categorize it and go, okay, so, you know, Joe Blobs from blah, blah, blah prefers when he's spoken to that he likes to have um, um, direct communication with explanation or he doesn't want explanation. Some people go nuts because you're explaining everything in detail. So then my brain puts it into those places and that's what I talk to people about. The problem is you say that to people but then there's, there's this thing of like, oh, it's not really true or that's not really what's happening. And then everything falls into this weird place where there's no, um, there's no, uh, no inclusivity and no, accessibil and no accessibility um, for your invisible disability. Because mm. part of the invisible disability is that you need, that honest voice is like if someone says, oh, you know, you need a, a hand railing to get up the steps because, you know, you have um, an, an issue with walking without help. 
same thing. The honest voice is like is like our railing, you know, because if you don't tell us the truth, what happens? You know, everything falls apart. Mm. We'll come back to that issue of the uh, invisibility of neurodivergence in a moment because I want to talk about the character of Quinny in Heartbreak High and and how uh, she uh, sort of magnifies and 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 demonstrates in a more visible way what you're uh, describing Um, but first of all I just wanted to ask you you mentioned that you attended a screen industry forum last year that was promoting diversity you decided to speak up and talk about your experience can you Tell us what happened and how people reacted to what you said. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. That was actually this year, and that was only a few weeks back. And that was with the incredible Bridie McKim. She did a, an access and inclusion masterclass at ScreenWorks. Um, ScreenWorks are really cutting edge, really, when it comes to what they're, they're providing for um, practitioners in the industry. So I find it like such a helpful event compared to lots of other things that I go to, I, I get so much enrichment from it. So Bridie was speaking, and it was interesting because uh, everyone thinks that working through apps and sending the questions silently to the presenter is a really cool way of people being anonymous, but actually what it did was created a separation, so Bridie was up the front there, and we had to send all our questions to her on, on the app, so um, it was all, like, there was a disconnect between the humanness. And so at the very end, I was trying to frantically put my question in, but I couldn't get it in on time. And then she sort of turned around to the floor and said, does anyone want to speak? And so I, I put my hand up and I, then I went to put my hand down, thinking, oh, no, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> and she says, yes. And I got up and I just said, oh, I'm Yudan Michaela Thorpe. I'm, I'm neural diverse. And then I just got choked up with incredible emotion and I, I couldn't speak in this sort of waiting going oh yes th- yeah thanks you done <laughs> and then I was like ah, I've got to speak and so I just spoke and said you know this is the first time where I've been in a safe place where you know having um being neurodiverse is an invisible um disability and I said you know I think that probably in my career I'd be a lot further if um, if I wasn't neurodiverse, because I wouldn't have offended so many people along the way, <laughs> and so we I sort of shared about things that would help to build the bridge and being able to have allies within our in our workplace, you know, in the industry and allies and and I guess even training, you know, like we as an Aboriginal woman, we have to do, you know cultural competency training for film crews when we go out on set so it's the same thing is that there needs to be something where you're doing you're doing some kind of training because you can't expect people to know they don't know and so when I spoke a lot of people came up and said we didn't know any of that sort of information thank you so much people were like this is the highlight of the conference this is amazing and so it was like a breakthrough um, and people that were in the audience that were neurodiverse came up to me with tears, and we just felt like it was a voice. So, yeah, that was the wrap-up on that one. <laughs> mm, a really um, poignant but really important, it sounds like, in terms of almost mm. like breaking the ice, you know, the mm. elephant in the room mm. and um, 
making it something that was okay to talk about in a in a space yeah. that you hadn't felt that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty powerful. Scary, but powerful. Um, and I wanted to mention something about Chloe Hayden on screen. Absolutely. Is that when I when I actually watched that program because I have teenage daughters and I always watch the teenage programs to make sure whether it's appropriate or not. I sort of went, ooh, that's a bit intense. But then I also watched Chloe and I actually bawled my eyes out because I went, oh, my God, that was me at high school. And and I never, you know, as an older as an older woman now, I didn't realise that I stood out so much in, the, in an environment. And so just seeing uh, how she had her friend as her ally, you realise that that's probably what I never had when I was at school. And you just go, it's so important to have um, neurodiverse people playing those parts. And I recently saw Drizzle Boy, which is a theatre performance which I recommend anyone to see about uh, a, a young man on the spectrum going to university. And it was, again, I just bawled because I was like, oh my God, I never get to see myself, you know, and just be able to talk to my family and say, oh, that's what goes on, like that whole representation of what goes on in my head, that's what that's what I just saw on stage or on screen, is that that's what I go through. So people don't understand it's all behind and underneath is what really makes a difference of being neurodiverse. You can be oh, an emotional sook and, and get upset about something, but what happens is that we take everything so deeply internalised and, you know, we might not sleep for days, we might um, cry for days, we might... Um, having tense anxiety, we have things that go on in our world because we don't see the world in one flat panel. You know, it's like we're constantly navigating a thousand different options in our minds of how how things could be, and we choose one that we think is appropriate, but often that's not the one. It's something else. So, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, we will have to wrap up the conversation. Um, I think there's a lot more that we could talk about um, and particularly when you're talking about Chloe Hayden uh, for viewer, uh, listeners that aren't familiar that uh, Chloe played the character of Quinny in Heartbreak High I'd love to have you back to, to talk more about um, what we see on screen and the difference it can make but uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning and uh, that was Bajara and Dunguti woman and filmmaker Yudan Michaelis Thorpe speaking about autism and neurodiversity on and off screen. I'll be putting the link to Yudan's article on our website. That concludes our special series for Autism Awareness Month. And I think that's all we have time for today for our show. And uh, what's most important for our listeners here now is that you do attend the May Day March that's coming up. And that is on uh, May 7th on a Sunday. So you are basically will have to assemble at the Victorian Trades Hall uh, at around Victoria and Russell Street. This is hap- uh, Please do assemble at 1pm. And if you do have any questions, you can actually do uh, contact Lang Cooper, who I spoke to just now. He's basically the secretary of the Melbourne Media Community Executive. His number is at 04-38-389-302. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. 
Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.